This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello and welcome to this week's Bunker Roundtable with me, Andrew Harrison. This week, a night at the opera or a day at the races. Does drinking sparkling wine and liking opera automatically expel you from the working classes as Dominic Raab seems to think it does? And why do our political classes have such an outdated idea of what constitutes posh and who should have access to it? Plus, the fallout from the US Supreme Court's shocking ruling on abortion continues to fall. Women are being advised to delete period tracker apps to prevent their phones from potentially incriminating them. What are the dangers of gathering health data in such vast quantities? Plus, it's Wimbledon, and this year marks 70 years of the existence of the Fred Perry polo shirt. From rude boys to proud boys, we look at the political power of clobber. All that and more on this week's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. Just a reminder that the season finale of our new podcast, Origin Story, is out now. On the new edition, Ian Dunt and Dorian Linsky take a deep dive into the world of neoliberalism. It's been a brilliantly illuminating series and season two is in the works. So catch up wherever you get your podcasts after you finish listening to The Bunker, obviously. Now, let's meet today's panel. First up, we've got journalist and author Marie Leconte. Hello, Marie Leconte. Hello. So Chris Pincher, the astonishing story of the uh, Wandering Hands MP. What is going on here? How could he possibly be uh, allowed to get in this position where he needs to resign for the same offence twice? This is going to be one of those fun topics where I get to pick my words very, very carefully Mm -hmm. because, I I mean, I'm assuming we don't want to get sued. Maybe you do. I definitely don't. What I will say is that I think I first looked into allegations about his behaviour in 2017. Um, mm. And I, I spend quite a lot of time, talked to a few other, because obviously I'm freelance, but talked to a few different newspapers about different stories we'd heard about uh, different people with stories about uh, what they said uh, Pincher had done to them for a bunch of boring, mostly legal reasons. None of them got published. But I know for a fact that lots of other journalists had been looking into similar stories. So again, like this is... It's one of those cases where, so, you know, when you hear that slightly frustrating thing that Westminster insider insiders go, oh, well, you know, like, there are MPs we all know are creeps, but, you know, yeah. we can't do much about them. He's definitely, I think, one of the main people mm. those people had in mind when they said stuff like that. I mean, obviously, one of the things we can talk about is that are the claims that Johnson was aware of his behaviour, at least in February of this year. And from what you're saying, it was kind of knowledge a lot long, longer before that. He used to laughingly refer to Pincher as Pincher by name, Pincher by nature. How is it possible that someone can resign once for this kind of behaviour and then find themselves in a position of having to resign again? Uh, well, so are, are you are you aware of this man called uh, Boris Johnson? Well. Um, um, but, no, I mean, m- more seriously, I think, you know, it's one of those why I don't, I don't normally like going for the cheap, cynical view of politics because I think it's actually incorrect a lot of the time. But in this case, I think it is just quite literally he was very loyal you know, mm. he was just a very pro-Boris person. He was part of the shadow whipping operation. People in number 10 clearly knew that he was not going to screw over number 10. And that's literally it. And, you know, and, and basically quite a lot of the allegations had not come out. Um, and that, that's, yeah, I, I don't think there's, there's more to it. I, I wish there were, but 
I mean, to, above all else, it was shockingly bad news management to go from the matter is closed in the morning to the inevitable suspension by tea time. Uh, we've got the 1922 committee electing a new executive this week. Would you, as a betting woman, possibly, would you bet that the another vote of no confidence would happen, uh, that the no vote inside a year thing will be suspended? I would say it's probably quite a safe bet to assume that there will be a vote under a year mm-hmm. after well, since the last one, yes. Um, I'm not sure when. I think the mood remains really, really odd in the Parliamentary Conservative Party because obviously it's kind of the summer party season at the moment, so I'm getting to talk to quite a lot of them, including ones I don't normally know very well. Hmm. Very odd. Like, generally, I have just had so many profoundly bizarre conversations over the past few weeks, you know, so from people I barely know, going within about, you know, so like 30 seconds, just sort of like whining and whinging and being very open about, you know, everything they think about number 10, about their colleagues, everything. I'm a bit like, I don't know you. I'm a journalist. (laughs) Why are you doing this? You can trust me. You know, I will not repeat this with your name attached to it. But my God. Or then, you know, people sort of like going, I talked to one MP who basically went on a massive rant against like their stupid colleagues who they hated and like stupid Boris Johnson being terrible for the party. But then he concluded that rant with, you know, that being said, I do think he's doing quite a good job at the moment. And I was like, what? Like, what, what are you on about? So it, it is, yeah, again, so I'm not, I think it is entirely possible that there'll be another vote against Boris Johnson in the next year. But with, yeah, with the quite big caveat that the vibe is weird. The vibe is really weird. I'm just picturing you at the Conservative summer parties like Lucy Van Pelt in Peanuts with, you know, the doctor is in, pay a dollar and you can talk about how awful it has been in the Conservative party. Also with us, writer and editor Justin Quirk. Hello, Justin. Hello, Andrew. So it's been a big weekend for all centrist dads, mums and non-dads and non-mums as Tony Blair holds his Future of Britain conference to generate new political ideas. This is centrist catnip for me and you. What stood out for you yeah, from this, this was, paper? This was Glastonbury for us, uh, middle it of the road. It was, yes. It was perfect. Um, I mean, there's a few things. It was firstly just the sort of novelty of having someone actually engaging with trying to think up new policy, because as Marie has, you know, detailed sort of week in, week out on here, you know, a lot of the political atmosphere is just getting sucked up by the business of, you know, the government just repeatedly sort of doing terrible things and trying to keep Boris Johnson in a job. So someone actually sort of taking a step back and a bit of a longer view and saying, here's maybe some stuff that, you know, we should be thinking about over the bigger picture was quite interesting. You know, I mean, the obvious things there was that focus on technology and climate that he sort of went into in a lot of detail. And I think he's correctly sort of picking those two out as the big issues for, you know, the next 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, it's almost glaringly obvious, but, you know, again, kind of novel seeing someone detailing that. You know, because you're trying to sort of think, well, when was the last time you actually saw someone presenting a serious slate of policies across that stuff. Um, One thing that did stand out to me, I thought, as more of the sort of mood music around it, was how untethered he seems to be now from Labour. As he gets older, I I don't Mm. feel like he is tribally wedded to it in a way that someone like Gordon Brown probably still is, or, you know, even someone like Corbyn, you know, I think at that sort of similar age, I think you get the feeling that he's much more just sort of like, okay, what are the ideas? What might work? I don't really care who picks them up. You say Tonti has ascended to a new level of being. He's just hovering above us. Yeah, I mean, Tonti has become Godhead. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, he's above the studio right now. Oh is, God, he, he's God, all around imagine. us, Marie. He's all. He's with us everywhere. He's with you when you're sleeping. He's there when you're awake. It's like we, the footsteps in the shore. Also, welcome back to tech journalist and author of the fantastic book on the effects of social media, social warming. Charles Arthur. Hello, Charles. Hi, Andrew. 
So Blair's been talking a lot about AI and technological solutions in his kind of run-up to Tonti stock, uh, often in connection with the NHS, which presupposes that there are tech solutions to all these problems that are facing us. Do you think he is right to place his face in these technocratic solutions? Are there kind of open goals that the next phase of government and politics can go for? Uh, for government and politics, I mean, maybe. I mean, I um, you know, I have to admit that I, I subscribe to the Dominic Cummings blog and and – He's sort of occasionally interesting in a, in a big think way. He's just complaining at the moment about the uh, the idea that sewage monitoring, which sounds you know very gross, but has turned up this thing about polio being in in London sewage uh, mm. is, is being turned off apparently for lack of you know because it, it costs too much. And uh, some of these sort of technocratic type solutions do have possibilities for for smoothing things out, but equally. I mean, you know, politics is about people. You don't really solve that with with a computer program. And and I think that um, he he was always a bit vulnerable, old Tonti, to the the idea that if you just threw a lot of computers at something, then you'd you'd sort it out. And that was one of the things that happened in the NHS was trying to do a big IT program, which completely fell to its knees very quickly and uh, and really was a big waste of money in many ways because because it's hard to do it well. It's really, really hard to do those things well. Ironically, that's more what Cummings is about, wasn't it? The idea that you can just have these kind of omniscient seeing rooms full of data and they're all going to point the direction forward. Well, yes, he he, he was great on, on, you know, all these people tend to get these things wrong. They sort of, they have these sort of big Star Trek ideas about, well, you know, you just walk onto the bridge and it'd be like that. And and actually it just doesn't happen like that. You know, even the, even the best run companies just fall apart when, when they try to do these things. It usually involves a big chair with them sitting on it in the middle of a room somewhere. Yes. And, whatever. and you've been posting a lot on your blog about possible uh, sentience in AI beginning to appear. People who think that their avatars are alive or even the Google engineer who says that the Lambda chatbot is, is kind of functionally alive. Do you, think, do you think we're close to that or is it just a, is it a, a mirage of evidence? No, it's it's a complete mirage. So uh, there was this um, this Google engineer called uh, Blake Lemoyne of Memory Serves, who was interacting with the chatbot that Google had built, and came to the conclusion based on the questions that he asked it that this thing was sentient and had the sort of the the sentience of about a seven or eight year old, which is just complete nonsense. It's just rubbish. It's it's basically seeing what you want to see in it. It's it's like seeing patterns in the clouds. You know, it's no more sentient than a cloud in that sense. But we love to fool ourselves, and people have been fooling themselves for decades. You know, computers will echo things back to you. You see, I think it understands me. I think it knows what I'm thinking. And and it's nothing of the sort. It's just, you know, computer programs sort of doing things and poking people in the directions that they want to be poked. So, so now, I, I mean, I think sentience in AI is miles and miles off. It's been promised. You know, it's been sort of 10 years away for the last 50 years, and, and I, I don't see any prospects of that changing. I mean, you know, being able to do really useful things, that's very possible. And, and, you know, beating people at all sorts of games of all sorts. Yeah, they can do that. But are they actually intelligent and, and knowing that they exist? No, you know, not, not even at the level of a dog. I'd solve for sentience in human beings at this stage. Last week, in one of the least edifying moments of our current political scene, Dominic Raab took aim at Angela Rayner for going to the opera and drinking champagne. Labour's deputy leader retorted with a tweet, a picture of her at the opera with a Kleinborn violinist, a working-class lad from Buxton, near where I grew up, she said. And she pointed out that the tickets cost £62, a fair bit less than going to the football. Do these cheap shots about class and privilege and poshness still work? Will we ever get over this cringy obsession over what is and isn't posh? 
Marie, even by the dismal standards of this parliament, this was kind of embarrassing, particularly the wink, the Raab wink, which was just... Uh, what did we find out about Dominic Raab from this, do you think? I just found it completely puzzling. So the wink was allegedly, I think, directed not at Angela, but at a male MP, like a male Labour MP who was doing something. I'm not uh-huh. sure. It's one of those that I tried reading about it and then my brain just shut down. I was like, no, life is finite. I just do, do not want to get an extended quote from sources mm. close to Dominic Raab about a wink. I, yeah, I, I just found it entirely puzzling because it's not, it's not even his, you know, he, he doesn't come across as the kind of, you know, like bumbling, comical posh guy. You know, to quote Do- uh, Dolly Alderton, uh, Dominic Crab looks like the king of <laughs> chicken breast aisle in the Clapham Common Tesco. <laughs> right, okay. Uh, which is just <laughs> such a more. beautiful, evocative, uh, but no, he's a gym bro, basically. So again, I okay. feel like his image is actually just kind of slightly psychopathic Jim bro I would say mm. if I were to put a word on it you know he's not Jacob Rees-Mogg he's not Boris Johnson so it felt very odd for him to join into something he's clearly not a part of yeah um, do you think these kind of things work when uh, you've got somebody who is supposedly a representative of the Conservative Party digging up a kind of massively outdated idea about champagne socialism and things like that does it does it work anymore I'm, so I'm not sure it does. And so I could see a world in which it could work against certain politicians, but I'm not convinced it works against Angela Rayner because she, you know, she is who she is, dresses the way she does, speaks the way she speaks, etc. Like it's not, I think clearly what they're trying to do is drive a wedge and saying, oh, actually, you know, those people want you to think they're on the side of the normal folk, but actually they're not. They're just posh like the rest of us. But like Angela Rayner obviously is not. And also she will always clap back. If there's one thing she's really mm-hmm. good at, it's clapping back anyway. So... Is there an equivalent to this in France, you know, where the average truck driver is understood to deserve a Michelin star dinner and a really nice bottle of wine? <laughs> um, God, we could do an entire other episode on this. But um, no, France is kind of the opposite in that no one ever really talks about class there. And because yeah. we've got this whole obviously la républicain sort of like thing saying, you know, we're all equal under the republic, even though class definitely exists. So I think my grand theory is that the ideal country would be one that is the exact halfway point in terms of talking about class between Britain and France, because we definitely don't talk about it enough. You guys definitely talk about it too much. Mm. So I think a perfect middle ground would be, yeah. A sort of metaphorical teeth. jersey kind of in the middle <laughs> kind of thing. Yes. I mean, British people, we all do it. We all kind of get the kind of nervousness. Do you ever deny yourselves things because you think you'd be you'd out of place, not not for the likes of me? Or do you just grasp it all with both hands? Oh, no, I strongly believe I belong anywhere. Um, right so then. it's fine. Yeah. But <laughs> I do find it. So I, I was considering writing a slightly troll column, see, agreeing with Dominic Raab for the first of like three quarters. But at the end, it's revealed that my angle is just opera is really boring. <laughs> I just really hate it. Like, I, I've been like twice and I hated it both times. So, yeah, I stand against Angela Rayner. <laughs> Fair enough. Justin, I'll just go back from Glastonbury where... Uh, you know, to the usual drivel about the middle classes from people who don't go there. Why is Gammon Britain so hooked on this class finder general stuff? I, I think there's a couple of things here. One is that arguing about this stuff, these sort of signs and symbols, it takes the place of any serious discussion about actual issues of mm. mobility or access or the transfer of wealth between generations because those things are quite difficult and uncomfortable. So if you can just reduce it to a kind of parlour game, that's much, much easier. The second is that I think, you know, unquestionably over our lifetime, social mobility has slowed drastically, even more so if you go back to say, like, compare my father's generation to me. And I think as that mobility has slowed, giving yourself the mantle of oppression Mm. in any way you can becomes a way of burnishing your own achievements. So people love complaining about stuff that they think is being sort of snooty or elitist because it makes you look like your own achievements are somehow greater, Mm. if that makes sense. 
So I think even when those complaints are coming from people who are in a position of real privilege, it's all a bit strange. It sort of becomes a way of saying, well, look how well I've done despite those people not wanting me to. And that's the kind of note that I think underpins that constant tone that you get in the mail, the telegraph, the Brexit campaign. It's that constant air of, Jesus, these people have been doing me down my whole life, Mm. even when that's manifestly absurd. Playing the victim stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I did a little bit of uh, 62 quid to go to the opera. I did a bit of compare and contrast. I gave LCD sound system in London a miss because it was 80 quid. Seemed like a lot to go to the Brixton Academy. Other tickets, Robbie Williams at the O2, 63 pounds to 162 quid, mostly sold out. Al Murray, friend of the podcast, gig for victory, £32 and upwards. That's one guy on a stage, 32 quid. Liverpool FC, tier one ticket, main stand, 59 quid. So this is all, you know, the opera is in a similar... You know, and no, mm. nobody would criticise anybody for doing any of these things. But it's interesting, isn't it? But I mm. think what is... I mean, I do find this stuff fascinating, but I think what's really telling is that you know instinctively what camp all these things fall into. Mm. Because I think these sort of codes of class are so imprinted on us in this country that... You know, and it goes, it's like when, I don't know, you go back and read Orwell where he's talking about food and how there's just like certain foodstuffs which the the working classes will not go for, Mm. even if they're better for them and they're cheaper. But then there are certain things that only the middle classes will. And the codes are, it's so nuanced. It's like when you look at, say, like, why does Mrs. Brown's boys in some way feel kind of working class and people just do nothing feels middle class? And you think, well, they're both sitcoms on BBC. You know, to an outsider, that probably just makes no sense whatsoever. And you go, well, but definitely one of them is in one camp and one of them in the other. And, you know, I think it's, if you haven't grown up in it, it probably makes no sense whatsoever. Despite all the guff about the Red Wall, the core Tory vote is still basically prosperous people in the southeast, isn't it? And they probably enjoy a bit of Simply Red at the local castle, maybe some light opera. How did they get addicted to slagging things off as posh as long as somebody else is doing them? Is it just because it's it is it is it filtered through who's doing it rather than what it is? Yeah, and and I think well, I think it partly is, and I think this is where it's a little bit more awkward for people like us. And I think to some degree, that constant sniping about everything from like cappuccinos to you know people going to the opera is a response to a world that people are a bit like us. You know, me and you, Andrew, basically. Massive ponces is what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah, people people who worked in the media. It's a world that we've sort of created because we lived, even a generation ago, we lived in this world of sort of brown food, bad teeth and ugly interior design. And (laughs) almost everyone was fine with that. Yes. And we now live in a culture which is much more designed. There's a much greater understanding of aesthetics and culture. And to some degree you are looked down on if you can't decode that stuff. But there is a social penalty now to being ugly and a bit naff in a way that there just wasn't 30 years ago. There's a huge power in public people who can overthrow that and say that they don't care and they're doing it on your behalf. And I think this goes back to it's Jeremy Clarkson in his awful jeans. You know, it's Boris Johnson dressing like a sack of laundry when he could have a charge account at Geeves and Hawks, you know, yeah. on, on tap. It's why like all the conservative print material, the design is absolutely appalling. It is really, you know, the, the use of typefaces, the layout, all of it is really self-consciously ugly. And I think at some level, it's a kind of anti-aesthetic that is saying to people, well, you will not be judged for that. Mm. And I think... We kind of reduce this stuff and sort of go, oh, well, everyone who voted Brexit wants to just turn the clock back by 30 years. And yet in some ways they do, but it's not necessarily about, I just want to go back when it was, you know, 
white people and everyone went to Butlins. It's saying it was a much safer place where it wasn't this kind of like ASOS, Love Island, Peter Savile world where everything is now designed and considered. Now, I like that because I like living in a world which has higher aesthetics and is designed and people have thought about this stuff. If you're not part of that, it can seem, I think, very exclusionary and a bit of a foreign country. And I think the politicians who've got that kind of rat cunning, and Donald Trump certainly has that, Johnson, I think, to a lesser degree because he is more inside that camp than out, had they have tapped into something with people there where they can say to them, it's okay to just be naff and ugly and have bad taste and you won't incur any sort of social penalty for it. Charles, I mean, the, the Conservatives used to be the party of upward mobility, didn't they? And this is very much anti, you know, this is know your place stuff. This is don't go to the opera, don't have nice things. Can that be squared with what the Conservatives stand for? Or is this actually kind of a, a new Conservative party? Did there used to be the party of upward mobility? I mean, the, the only thing I can sort of remember is, is John Major about who everyone used to make the joke that he ran away from the circus and joined the accountants. Cause yes. that was sort of about his, but, um, I, I don't think they've ever been the party of upward mobility. They've been more sort of, you know, we'll, we'll cut your taxes, but stay in your place sort of thing. I think Alan Clark in his diaries, who said that, um, you know, there was, there was a sort of divide in the Tory party between, uh, the ones who owned their own furniture and it had been in the family for generations and those who had bought their own furniture. And, uh, and, and there's this, there's this sort of, it, it's just deep within, I think, the, the Tory party to, to be like that. And also, of course, the, you know, I was thinking as Justin was talking that part of the thing about opera, obviously, is you tend to dress up to go to opera. You know, the men wear, you know, black tie and the women wear sort of cocktail dresses and things. And possibly that's also a sort of a, a class thing that, that we feel that, well, go to the opera is this, it's this sort of fancy smancy things. And, you know, who, who does that often? And, um, yeah, it's a sort of, a slightly getting above yourself sort of thing that, you know, who, what sort of plumber would own a black tie? But nobody dresses up and goes mad for a night out like the the British working class. You know, I mean, my family lived near Aintree and, you know, racing weekend. Okay, you always get the sneering pictures in the mail, but, you know, people put get their finery on and spend, spend a fortune. You know, it's not, it's not exclusionary at all. Yeah, it's fascinating as well. But it, but also, you know, a day at the races could, or a night at the races means slightly different things, doesn't it? It's, uh, yeah. you know, one one is horses and one is greyhounds. And, and immediately, again, you get a sort of class divide. We have all these all these signals that we sort of, um, you know, understand just without having to think about it. And yet uh, to someone from outside the country, it's sort of like, why are you making this distinction between greyhounds and horses and, you know, who goes to them and what they eat there? It's It's very weird. Just to bring it back to Angela Rayner, there is a real hatred of her in in the louder parts of Johnson Gammon sphere. They really the, the attack line is all she's common, and it all hung around that really really horrible basic instinct story. I mean, it's is this just sort of sixty plus reactionaries who don't like working class women, or is it is it is it something more complicated and sinister? Do you think? I think they 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 have trouble finding a thing to dislike Angela Rayner for. Yeah. And so they cotton onto the thing that's nice and easy, which is, you know, she, she's sort of, you know, came from a working background and is now, for reasons they cannot understand, the deputy leader of the Labour Party. And, and to some, for some reason, that's just wrong. You know, and so she's not, she, you know, I mean, all the female, uh, high up Labour MPs have had all sorts of abuse in the past, haven't they? So, you know, um, you know, Harriet Harman used to get it all the time. 
um, and, uh, and and so on. And you know, going right back to, to Barbara Castle, it's a, it's a, it's a long standing thing. You know, she got it even from within the Labour Party. So it's not as if that's anything new. I think we just we just sort of see it focused so much harder now, and 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 we're so much more aware of it. Uh, whereas in the in the past, maybe it was more like a sort of background radiation thing. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. In the wake of the Supreme Court striking down Roe versus Wade, women in America have been urged to delete period tracking apps for fear that networked data like this could be used to prove they've had or sought an illegal abortion. But instead, the industry monitor Data.ai says downloads of period tracking apps actually doubled in the days since Roe was overturned, with particular spikes for one called Clue and another smaller one, Stardust, both of which claim to offer data protection after the Supreme Court's decision. A third of American women are thought to use period trackers and the Democrats have announced moves to protect that data. Health data does have powers to help us, but how do we stop it being turned against us and specifically against women? Marie, there is an app, an app for everything. So, once surprisingly, women have been using them to track fertility. Is deleting it going to help if you're kind of going to be triangulated for your phone? I, well, that's a good question, isn't it? I feel like it certainly can harm mm. uh, to stop using them. But also, I mean, I don't know, I'm quite biased anyway because I'm actually weirdly a massive Luddite on that stuff. You know, I do not have a single app that tracks any aspect of my life, never have, probably never will. You know, buy your paper calendar. You know, I, I, I realise it sounds glib, <laughs> but genuinely if you, what you're doing is literally just tracking, you know, every 28 days, you can do that on with pen and paper. But no, more seriously, I think it's surely, even if there's only a very, very small risk that people will start using it against you if you do get an abortion. Now, is it worth all that paranoia? Like, I know I would definitely feel paranoid. But then, yeah, I mean, on the tech stuff, I have no idea because then I suppose what... what cause I was trying to think about it on the way here, actually, and I don't know. I guess, yeah, you'd have to go... You'd have to go to some sort of like abortion, not even clinic abortion advice underground yeah. sort of place, but leaving your phone at home, presumably. And that's the only way you could sort of get information. There's the only safe way you could do it. No, it, it's entirely dystopian. I mean, I, I regret I don't have anything sort of like clever or funny to say about this. It's just horrific. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to be funny about it because it's one of the most horrible things that's happened in our current times, isn't it? I mean, campaigners mm. have pointed out it's not actually the app itself. It is the circumstantial evidence, the text that you may send to somebody going, oh, shit, I'm pregnant, or I'm late on my, you know, uh, late on my period, or searches for abortion websites or even travel websites. And they've even warned that a burner phone, you get a separate phone with a separate SIM, that itself would not be enough. So, I mean, what is going on with women's ability to live a normal life in these 13 states if you can't if you can't use that basic thing? A mobile phone is an absolute necessity of modern life, isn't it? Hmm. And also, I feel like, you know, people Google stuff all the time, not to state the obvious here, but, you know, I've, I've never had an abortion. I've Googled it before. Yeah. Like, I'm really sorry. It's just one of those things where I just have nothing to say, really. I have no idea how, you know, you because clearly that means, yeah, you have a life online that is not free at all. And I suppose that... So I wonder as well, looking at the bigger picture, if... That's not going to, especially in the US, just fundamentally reshape the way, especially women, but hopefully people in general, approach just tech in general. Because if you start having to think 
like this about one aspect of your life, surely mm. that will lead to a wider, you know, hang on yeah. um, about just absolutely every every single thing you do online. Well, it relates to the, to the portal through which you, you live pretty much every other aspect of your life. Mm. Charles, I mean, you understand big data. Clarence Thomas, the Supreme Court justice, has indicated that the court will look again at past privacy decisions, which could open up the contents of your phone to investigators in a way that, that, that in America, in a way that it's not open now. I mean, are, are there ways that people can avoid that? Well, yeah, it's interesting because the way in which Roe v. Wade was overturned was that the the justices argued that the Constitution doesn't include anything about privacy. And the reason why Roe v. Wade succeeded in the first place was that it was argued that if you have an abortion, it's your you know, it's up to you. And the, the state can't can't get an insight into it and this has basically been uh, overturned and and it's actually a, it's, in some ways it's a bigger topic that americans do not have any privacy laws there's no federal privacy law so in this sense that the whole question of whether your phone could be seized or whether the data that you've tried to uh, gather or check from your phone could be could be you know looked at without your consent becomes a, a much bigger topic um, you know, you almost move to a to you know a really dystopian thing where where you just have to be where you are being surveilled all the time. So, uh, in terms of what you can do, you can use other search engines that are not Google, for example. Uh, I use one called DuckDuckGo, which does not keep a search history. Obviously, you have to get your uh, browser to delete the search history all the time as well, which can be a bit of a hassle. But um, you know, that would be one way of doing it. Obviously, you want to use apps which don't store data in the cloud because it's in the if it's in the cloud then it can be uh, subpoenaed by the police theoretically and do you want to have a phone perhaps where you can just delete all the data really easily which can be difficult in the in the world as it is today because um you want <laughs> it tends to be that you want to have your phone so that if you drop your phone down the you know into, into the lake or something then you can easily uh, get another one and set it all up again within a few minutes but this goes against that and, and so you have this enormous tension caused by this uh, overturning basically of privacy the stuff that's come out uh, since this just purely on communications is astonishing the new york times reported that investigators could potentially use smartphone location data if states pass laws forbidding women from traveling to areas where abortion is legal so even that circumstantial evidence could be used against women and slate pointed out that the government might not even need to compel data release legally it can just buy it on the open market because this data is shared and made available for sale via you know google and others advertising function it's almost as if this is the kind of very unexpected payoff of everything we've been warned about on privacy for the past 10 years yeah it really is i mean this is this really is the uh, the lack of privacy laws and and people's indifference to what apps are doing with their data and the the frameworks that get built into these things so they can show you ads it's all though all those chickens coming home to roost in an absolutely gigantic way and the way to stop that data getting off your phone is, is basically not to use any apps that will use it. But it's really difficult because you don't actually know um, in any third-party app what sort of frameworks they have built in, what sort of data arrangements they might they might uh, have in terms of what they share. It's slightly better on the Apple iPhone platform because Apple is much more 
difficult with uh, with companies about what it will allow them to get access to. You know, it forces them to ask for access to your location and so on. But on Android, it can be really quite difficult to turn off that sort of location sharing. And a lot of the apps will take your location data and will sell it. You know, weather apps, for example, will do that. Uh, all sorts of apps that you would never have thought would have any you know use for your location data, but it has value. And, and this is the way in which it's uh, now coming home to roost. So, the, the steps to take tend to be, well, just don't trust anything and turn off the location data as much as you can. But even then, if your phone is still working as a phone, as a mobile phone, you could you could triangulate between the different phone masks. So it's almost as if you have to basically cut yourself off from uh, in the entirety of modern life in order to move out of state if you're in one of these 13 states. Justin, on the, on the wider question, I mean, you're a kind of healthy guy yourself. Do you use health tracking apps, you know, sort of harvesting data on all your millions of reps? And um, well, I thought I didn't, but then I looked in my phone and then particularly under the health thing, there's absolutely loads of information in there. Um, although that also flags up an interesting possibility that I suspect at some point in the near future, we're going to see someone having this data used against them, which turns out to be false. Because, so for example, I mean, really basic, when I looked at the, the sleep tracker in my Apple phone, which claims that I sleep for an average of four and a half hours a night. I sleep like I'm in cryogenic suspension. <laughs> I, literally, I sleep for about 10 hours a night. I do not stir. I wake up in the same position that I go to sleep mm. in, and my phone thinks I'm doing four hours a night. And over the averaging over six months, I have no idea where it's getting this from. So that then makes you think, well... You know, as to Charles's earlier point, you know, we often have this faith in all online stuff as being this sort of, you know, magical seeing eye. Possibly not. Is this you accidentally admitting to being a nighttime murderer? Do <laughs> you think every single night you wake up for about four hours, you go commit murders, and then you come back and like, yeah. is this? Have you just incriminated yourself? That's all I'm going to say. That's I mean, all that's, I'm going to. You know. that, that's escalated quite quickly there from <laughs> I sleep really well to have I murdered yeah. a taxi driver yeah, without remembering the, the Kingston Strangler. Is, I mean, yeah. yes, I, I'm, I'm just not. asking questions. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, yeah, that, that, that old chestnut. Yeah. I've seen enough Irish people. Fit up, mate. I know. I know. <laughs> Charles, the question of health apps is a huge one, and the gathering of data, and even the the idea that we're constantly sold the idea of you know Fitbits and trackers as being wonderful because they're going to get you a better insurance premium, and nobody ever talks about what happens to your insurance premium when you don't have one, and how you are kind of you know. You, can potentially be penalised for that. It's a big question, but where are health apps going at the moment? What are the areas that are being um, targeted? Well, they, like you said, there's there's a lot of incentives being offered, you know, sort of get your Apple Watch really cheap um, if you sign up for our health insurance and that sort of thing. Um, and, and those are being used as a come on to get people to uh, sign up for, for health insurance and other things. I mean, but at at the extreme, it can it can be used very much in a societal manipulation way. So in in China, where they're still going after the completely crazy zero COVID policy, there's a COVID app where if you have COVID, if you test positive for COVID, uh, the app will show it, and you're not then allowed to use public transport, various functions, not to go to various shops, various restaurants, and this is now being used against people. So there were some people, there's been a number of um, small banks in China which are basically going bust. Uh, and there were some people who wanted to go and protest about this fact. And they they uh, all got on, on trains, travelled to the place where they wanted to protest. And then when they got off the chain, they suddenly found that all their COVID tracker apps said that they uh, they were COVID positive, so they couldn't go anywhere. And this is essentially the Chinese state using this system uh, to control what people can do, where they can go. It's 
very scary. Uh, and it, in many ways, it sort of justifies all the fears that the, the slightly tinfoil-headed people um, had over here about COVID passports and so on. Um, you know, this is very much taken to an extreme. But you know, if the extreme exists, then it's it's something to be wary of. And so one always has to be a bit cautious, I guess, about allowing too much latitude to these sorts of apps because you know the the slope might be long, but it is slippery, and you know there is a sort of a pretty horrible valley at the bottom. Marie, just to kind of uh, close this section off, I mean, on the question of abortion, there's no real immediate threat in the UK. In fact, the BMA is calling for Britain to offer free abortions to women from the US who are unable to get them at home. Uh, And in France, they're talking about putting abortion rights actually into the Constitution. But do you see what's happening in America now as kind of emboldening anti-abortion activists in Europe? Oh, yes, absolutely. And I don't think, you know, it would be a case of, you know, tomorrow, a British MP deciding that, you know, we have to ban abortion, and that's it. But I think, in terms of, there's actually a sizable minority of the Conservative Party, uh, who want to at least or like drastically lower the limit at which you can get an mm. abortion. And that's something, you know, Nadine Dorries is one of them, like quite a few have been very open about that. So I could definitely see again, like more of an inching towards, you know, oh, well, actually, clearly, this is a debate that's reopened. So let's try and kind of shift the Overton window bit by bit. So again, I, I don't, you know, I don't have any immediate concerns. But I do think there needs to be a degree of vigilance, I suppose, mm-hmm. in terms of how, you know, just very small things, very small sort of, you know, bit by bit kind of debates about maybe, uh, changing things slightly. Everything is depressing. So I feel like I was, yeah, listening to all the bits about the apps and thinking I just really need a drink now. <laughs> Always a reasonable response. Finally, Wimbledon is underway, and this year also marks 70 years of the introduction of the Fred Perry shirt, the ubiquitous twin tip top that has adorned everybody from the specials to Elastica to Amy Winehouse to, somehow, a bunch of American street fascists. One-time world number one tennis player Fred Perry won 10 majors, including eight Grand Slams and three consecutive Wimbledon titles between 1934 and 1936. The shirt that he launched in 1952, which was in white only at first, became code for working class fashion and also a magnet for unfortunate politics. So when does a shirt become more than a shirt? Marie, what do you think of when you think when you see a Fred Perry? So I was thinking about that, and this is going to be quite niche, I'm afraid. Mm. Um, I think of tour managers... Oh, right. Like, specifically in the, like, 2010. So, no, late, late 2000s. No, I don't know why, because I was trying to think, okay, you know, what is, like, if I'm picturing a Fred Perry shirt, because I used to be a music journalist um, yeah. when I was younger, and weirdly what I picture is a weird simile of, like, all, every tour manager I ever had to deal with to source an interview. So you there were. you go. Just like the, the manager of a guitar band from Britain in 2008. That is that is very specifically what I picture. I was going to say 2008. You're wingling with a better class of tour manager than me because the only tour managers I saw were all in gigantic baggy black promotional T-shirts. And wearing a Fred <laughs> Perry would have been as ostentatious beyond measure. Have you got one yourself at all? Uh, no, I don't think I ever have had never, one. Never actually. owned one? I regret one? to say no. Okay. Were they big in France when you were a kid at all? Uh, no. Mm. No, I, I think that they were always one of those that actually, you know, seemed just very British, like one of those very British things. What connotations does it have for you, apart from tour managers? I mean, I'm going to be honest with you, it's kind of the only one I found out reading the script for this today that it was a tennis thing. Really? Yeah. Um, I'm just, Good you know, I, I feel like there's no point in lying at this stage. So uh, so, so here we are. Good. Well, yeah. I mean, I suppose calling it a polo shirt is a bit of a diversion, isn't it? You know, we don't <laughs> actually play that much polo in this country. Justin, as our unofficial uh, Schmutter editor, what's made the Fred Perry last? It's a few things, Andrew. So it's um, on an aesthetic level. I mean, it's just it's a design classic. It's a basic sort of wardrobe staple. 
But a lot of it is to do with the cultural associations that mm. are around it. And that's where it gets really interesting. It's a really good example of what you often get in fashion is this kind of Mobius strip that runs between items that emerge in sort of elite culture. So, for example, very high-end white lawn tennis associations. Those items are then taken on by usually sort of underclass or excluded groups as a sort of symbol of you know aspiration and are then sold back into the mainstream that way. So the Fred Perry, for example, as they say, starts in kind of lawn tennis where it's taken on partly by a sort of white working class in this country, but particularly by sort of rude boys in Jamaica. So in the sort of first wave of Scar and Blue Beat, it becomes part of the uniform there, mm. then filters back into much more mainstream white working class in the UK. And you can see that played out through whole host of brands and items. So more recently something like the way the Burberry shirt went yeah. from being this sort of like ultra bougie sort of tatler item to something that was being worn by people in garage clubs in the late 90s as this really sort of ostentatious symbol of sort of leisure wear and then became sort of completely mainstream to the point where it just sort of killed it off for the brand uh, something like the Ralph Lauren's there's a really good documentary on Netflix about Ralph Lauren mm. similar sort of thing you know Ralph Lauren creates this sort of dream world image of white Ivy League Americana it then gets adopted sort of particularly through the 80s with things like really really poor like uh, Puerto Ricans in New York a group of the Puerto Ricans that go on these vast shoplifting missions through New York what? And then, yeah there's a documentary about there's, there's a rat was a huge subculture did you Puerto say Rican. Polo Ricans yeah that's what they call oh, that's yeah. what they call themselves and they, they do love the, that and they go so back much. to you know the outer boroughs and then do these huge sort of group photos just head to toe in this crazy Ralph Lauren swag this is, go, is this of... actually what you do at night just <laughs> yeah. go around stealing Ralph Lauren <laughs> while I'm not murdering while it's not murder yeah. yeah this is reminding me of certain a certain Northern football fan uh, teams uh, fans with their sudden attachment to Pringle, yeah, out of nowhere the Tarby look. Well, the Pringle, but also, um, given we're talking about you know your home city, the uh, the Deerstalker hat, the Deerstalker hat. So yes. and and the, the football fans, football's often because of this country and football being the big thing. Football is often the matrix that a lot of this stuff yeah. goes through. So you had really classic example would be things like Stone Island jackets. You know, Stone Island is this. In Italy, it's very high-end, very technical sailing and racing gear, Hmm. which for reasons not entirely clear became a big thing amongst, shall we say heads with public order convictions in the north of Are England. Are you saying football 80s. hooligans, aren't you? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> no. Who obviously realised that a racing driver's jacket with goggles that zip down over your face were quite handy if you <laughs> didn't want to be identified on camera, for example. But that then became, you know, it was these hugely expensive sort of Italian leisure wear that became taken on by that subculture there is now far more mainstream. The challenge for brands is always how do you manage that shift between stage two and stage three because Mm. if you mismanage it it does what Burberry does where suddenly everyone's walking around in NAF Burberry check and it kills the brand off and it took them a long time to come back if you can walk that line and you do it very very carefully you can ride that point for a long time have you got Fred Perry yourself? Well, I haven't because I'm a big white bloke with a shaved head. And <laughs> if I wear one, I look completely, uh, it's just a Wally magnet. I just look like I'm in the EDL if I wear stuff like that. <laughs> There's certain things. Basically, if you're white with a shaved head, it's like you can't really wear white trainers. You can't wear sportswear. You can't wear things like Fred Perry shirts. You just look like a burglar, basically. So I need to be, <laughs> best. I need to be quite careful. Adding it to the list. Absolutely. Charles, how about you? Do you want a Fred Perry at all? 
No, I, I don't. I mean, I, I uh, you know, a million years ago, I used to be a, a tennis journalist. I used to go around and uh, ah. you know, cover the tournaments and stuff. But no, uh, uh, you know, and play tennis as well. But I ne- not at any sort of level. But no, I've never owned Fred Perry stuff. Never wanted to either. It's never um, attracted me. I have to say. But I'm I'm fascinated by you know Justin's description. It sounds like every clothing brand uh, goes from sort of being high end. And works its way down until eventually it sort of hits the the dumpster bin of you know right wing hooligans and stuff. It it seems to be like a completely inevitable path. Um, you know, start up a start up a fantastic brand and you know like your, your sailing thing or Fred Perry or, or Ralph Lauren and and eventually you know the, it'll be shown off by by gangs sort of thing. It's it's really weird. The smart one seems to be able to negotiate it. The textbook case here is the Proud Boys who started with this horrible, you know, listeners will be familiar with these horrible fringe Trumpist racist right wingers who started wearing the black Fred Perry. That was like my starter Fred Perry when I was a kid. I always wanted one because I loved the specials and everything that went with it. Justin, tell us, I mean, Fred Perry stopped selling that shirt because of the Proud Boys. Tell us how, how Fred Perry have kind of managed to deal with this association, not just with the kind of out extreme right here, but also with the... The shouty large bloke at the match wearing their stuff, bringing their brand down. I mean, they've they've actually done a really, really good job on it. And I say, I think their response to the Proud Boys thing was exemplary. They essentially just withdrew that item from sale and put out an extremely unequivocal statement saying, you know, our brand is not for people like you. Please stop wearing our shirts. We're mm. not selling it until you do. It's always around like the brand language that these people use. So if you look at things like the ad campaigns and the in-store material in places like Fred Perry or Stone Island would be another example. Mm. Look at the kind of people they use as their models. Look at the kind of people they use in their lookbooks. It'll often be, you know, use lots of women, uh, lots of mixed race models, people who have sort of like non-conventional looks about them. What they won't use is a load of massive growlers who look like Buster Blood Vessels. <laughs> and even if, and it, it's, it's a balancing act because obviously that is part of their customer base mm. and, you know, their money's as good as anyone else and they are a business. But you'll always see, you know, essentially that's why you put all the money into the branding side of a label like that because that's how you shape the visual language around mm. it and you know what do they sponsor what do they put money into which events they support you know we've just had pride in london this weekend it's why like so many brands are present at there yeah. because it's a way of sort of shaping it's a way of sort of it, using a bit of gatekeeping over the brand and yeah. i the only place you'll see more fred perry's than a, an edl thing is a, a big gay night somewhere because it is bare uniform but also like regular gay guy uniform but that's where like all this stuff is about context and you know and again with things like the stone island jackets you know if you wear that to the football it says one thing Mm. in particular and it's probably a bit of a wally magnet if you wear it you know as you will see people wearing it around london fashion week or you know it's it then becomes something very different and you know these things shift over time i mean you know there's there's a long history of this i mean my favorite one in 1964 when it was a run-up to the tokyo olympics you were just seeing the beginnings of the fad in or the fashion in Japan for people dressing in a very, very formal Ivy League style. Mm. What became the Amatora movement? So sort of Japan kind of rehabilitating American menswear. And the riot police descended on the Ginza neighbourhood in Tokyo and basically anyone who was wearing a button-down shirt with like a sort of preppy haircut and penny loafers was rounded up, put in the back of the vans and given a good kicking because they would, that was seen as this shorthand for complete delinquency in the way that the hooded top was 10 years ago or yeah. you know 
the Fred Perry probably becomes at different times. So it's, it changes with time and context. And I say these things always go through a journey and then they eventually come back again. So I'm trying to think of another item of clothing that's got such a huge spread of connotations as the Fred Perry. Everything from, as we've said, you know, yeah, the extreme right wing, also, you know, gay culture and Jamaican reggae culture and high-end fancy pants preppy culture. I can't think of it. Is there another garment that's got such a huge spread as the Fred Perry? It's tricky. I mean, maybe the Ralph Lauren polo. I mean, to some degree, I mean, that could be, you know, proper sort of old school Ivy League or it could be, you know, Wally's wearing them in double extra large size in big pastel colours in terrible pubs. Um, that probably has a similar thing. Um, I say I think the Stone Island and stuff like the goggle jackets, I think that definitely sort of covers both things. Even something probably in more recent times like the Reebok Classic. Yeah, as I was about to say, I feel like trainers yeah. surely yeah. should be the kind of like Nike yeah. Airs or something. Yeah, um, the Reebok Classic, I mean, that was like the uniform of... UK garage became completely ubiquitous as like the worst end of kind of inner city culture. And then these things get sort of ironically rediscovered by sort of other people later on. But even, you know, things like army surplus, you know, if you'd mm. said to people sort of 50 years ago, yeah, people will be habitually walking around wearing decommissioned army gear. If you'd come from a culture that either had a history of civil war or national service, that would have seemed really deeply strange. It's mm. like, why are you wearing this? So I think, you know, these things, it's, that's what makes this stuff so fascinating. You know, the context is, is all. When will I be too old to wear my limited edition Japanese Fred Perry in olive green with glow-in-the-dark tips? Oh, never. I mean, that, that's, the, that's the beauty <laughs> of these things, because that kind of smarter wear, you can wear it as long as you want. And that's, you know, all that stuff, you know, really nice Ralph Lauren stuff, Fred Perry stuff, Brooks Brothers stuff, anything that's that sort of like slightly preppy ivy look. It, it never dies. It's not like walking around with like a Mohican or a safety pin through your nose or anything. So, you know, go on till the grave, rude boy. We will bury, <laughs> bury your heart at wounded Fred Perry. Thank God for that. <laughs> Marie, are you persuaded at all? Are you going to be running out to get one of the Amy Winehouse limited edition dresses at all? Uh, I will not, but thank you so much. Okay. I, that was very interesting. <laughs> I just have very particular clothing taste. Fair dues. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in the New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's time for the panel's escape routes. What are the books, films, TV shows, whatever, that are giving our panellists a break from the horrific world of politics? Marie. Given your intro, it will be quite funny for me to say, uh, I'm reading a novel called Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead. Oh, sounds um, cheery. It, <laughs> no, it's, it's very good. I can't remember the name of the author. She is Polish and I just do not, she does not deserve what I would do to her name. But no, no, very good novel. Um, and I have been watching season three of The Umbrella Academy, which I really enjoy. Let's, um, let's dial back to the bones over the dead thing. Sorry, What's yes. happening in this particular novel? Uh, Clues in the title, Andrew. Yes. <laughs> it's, well, there, there, there's a plough and there are dead people. Mm. Um, no, it's actually so it's an old woman who lives in uh, the middle of nowhere in the mountains in Poland and deaths occur. Mm. And I can't really say too much. But I mean, it's not it's not as gory or bleak as it sounds. 
And I, I'm aware how bleak and gory it sounds. If you, were, um, if you told me that was an album, I, I could picture the cover and it would have a lot of bones on it and it'd probably be it death would, metal. It would, wouldn't it? Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. No, either that or like guitar, very slow, kind of creepy, so like 26-minute long songs. Yes. I think like that or the other. Yeah. Like grindcore fiction. Charles, what have you been watching, reading, listening to? I have been binging on Disney Plus on The Orville, which is Seth MacFarlane's sort of redo of Star Trek, the original series, which for a long time I was put off by. I I sort of took, paid no attention to it because of the name. I mean, you know, because of the bloody associations with a stupid green duck. Um, <laughs> I guess Americans don't don't get at all. And so they're like, why, why do you object to it being called Orville? Um, but it, it's just been fascinating and watching it sort of evolve from, because I, I just went straight through from series one, episode one, straight through to the most recent episode and uh, watching the way that the, the writings evolved has been fascinating. And um, it's got some really great episodes in there, which, uh, which I mean, I won't sort of spoil, but, but it's just been, it's been a complete break from, oh my God, all the, all the madness that's been going on. You will appreciate, of course, that today's hit tweet around the world has been somebody warning us that we're about to enter the world of Orville's 1984. You know, George Orville, <laughs> or Orville, the famous green duck who wrote yeah, those yeah, terrible nice. <laughs> predictive books. Justin, how about you? Uh, Tour de France starting this week. Um, mm-hmm. It's just perfect television. It's on. It's on every. If you work from home, it's perfect television. It's on every afternoon this week. I think it's ITV two or three, one of the sort of auxiliary ITV channels. They have brilliant commentary. You don't need to know anything about it. It's just hours of gorgeous rolling French countryside, steady bicycle action, the occasional sort of crash to liven things up a bit. But it's it's just perfect slow television. And you holding up a sign that says "Dear Kaufman Motorhomes" at the end every oh, yeah. single time. <laughs> Mine, uh, it's a book. It's a book of short stories by M. John Harrison, no relation. It's called You Should Come With Me Now. It is a collection of ostensibly ghost stories, but ghost stories for the modern world and the, and the modern sensibility. M. John Harrison is a science fiction writer. He's written a couple of fantastic books, uh, Light and Nova Swing. He has a tone of voice and a way of creating a reality that seems entirely different from the rest of science fiction that, um, that that's not going about at the moment. And it, it, much of, of the book, You Should Come With Me Now, is set in a recognised real world with a tiny tweak that tends to open up great strangeness. One of the stories involves a man who is so burdened by the new baby in his house that he decides to disappear inside his own house. He vanishes from view inside his own house into the loft where he can't be found and very strange counter-reality things begin to occur in the loft. And that's just one of about 30 different astonishing um, stories. I've really got into short stories now because you can squeeze a couple in before you nod off. Oh, can I recommend one book of short stories, actually? Yes, you can. Uh, very different from this, uh, Slow Days, Fast Company by Eve Babbitts, mm. uh, written in the 70s, I think. Just some of the best writing I've ever seen um, is tremendous. It's very light, just like beautifully written, really fun. Uh, cannot recommend enough. This is what I need, really fun. And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thank you, Justin Quirk. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Marie Lacance. Thank you. And thank you to our special guest, Charles Arthur. Thanks so much. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. If you like what we're doing, you can, of course, support us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out about early episodes without adverts on them, mugs, T-shirts, all kinds of other stuff. And we're going to end with the traditional shout-outs to some of our newest backers. Hello from me and many thanks to Hayden, Swack 65 and Stephen Tribble. Many thanks from me to Deborah Parrish and Paramore and Michael Hughes. And finally, best wishes from me to Anne Spateri, Joe E and Ruth Crowell. 
Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Marie LeConte and Justin Quirk. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Yelna Sofronievich, Jacob Archbold, and me, Alex Reese. I did go to LCD Sound System, so I can't afford to go to the opera now. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Pop Masters production. Thank you.